0: Hey, I'm Joseph. (laughs) Hey, I'm Joseph. And I'm Steve. We're exploring a simple question.
1: Why do people do what they do?
0: Welcome to Working Title. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm really good. You may hear, uh, you may hear a crying baby or a four-year-old in the background at some point, but, uh,
2: I would expect that <laughs> based on your video.
0: <laughs> oh, that's right.
2: Launch <laughs> That made me laugh so hard.
0: Yeah. So I'm that's in that, so, I'm in that same so room, funny. same room that I recorded that in. And, uh, for if, if we do keep this in, uh, which we might, I, I recorded a, a video for, for KJ's book launch, just sort of like, hey, congrats. It was supposed to be like 30 seconds or a minute. And <laughs> I, without exaggerating, at least three or four times in that, Zeke came in, right?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, so.
2: It was it was so funny.
0: Yeah, that is that is absolutely my life right now.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you might hear a dog, but he's usually pretty quiet
0: or like a babbling brook or like the angels singing from the mountains. It feels like wherever you live right now is just perfect.
2: (laughs) It is really nice. It's actually raining a little right now, which is uncommon for Colorado. And I'm kind of loving that there's a little darkness outside, but
0: I think I'm, I think I'm, I'm combining, uh, Montana and Colorado into one thing in my mind.
2: Well, they are both really beautiful.
0: They really are. So
2: that that might be why.
0: Yeah. I, I didn't realize that Denver was not like a, because are you guys in Denver or outside of Denver?
2: We are outside of Denver on the west side. So we're like a little closer to the mountains.
0: Okay. Yeah. I didn't yeah. realize that when I flew into Denver uh, on the way to <laughs> Montana, that like it was going to be no mountains, you know, it was just going to be like a complete bowl. The, and,
2: the airport is basically in Kansas.
0: Yes. So strange. Yes.
2: Um, yes, it's very
0: weird. Well, that's great. Are you doing good today?
2: I am doing good today. Yeah. Well, cool. I am.
0: Well, I'll cut I'll cut all of this out. Basically, um it's just free flowing. It's uh don't feel any pressure to be uh you know, polished or profound or anything. It'll basically the way I the goal is like uh an even looser unedited version of uh Krista Tippett's on Being podcast
2: Oh yeah, that's a great
1: goal right there.
2: Yeah,
0: so like not not uh you know, I I won't have as formulated questions as she does. Uh conversational flow a little bit more, but we'll just keep all the little bits in. We're not going to try to cut it yeah, for time or anything. That, so
2: That's great. I I like keeping it real and that's my favorite way to do the podcasting. So yes, cool. Sounds
0: great. Um, and then we'll just talk. So I'm thinking about I'm thinking about including this, like doing a dual thing, like sending it out to the church on our church's podcast thing, and then also uh, including it as like a bonus episode on our thing on vocation. And it's loose anyway. The the title of the podcast is working title, and it's just about why people do what they do vocationally. And so we kind of go in and out of that. If it works in conversation today, if it feels like it's uh at all remotely close to, you know, touching on some of that, then I'll do it and if not no problem. Um Cool. But we'll just sort of see where it goes.
2: Yeah, that sounds good.
0: Okay. Uh have you have you had to do a bunch of press stuff like this for the book?
2: Oh yeah, like constant. <laughs> so, yes. Okay. Uh to the point where it's like the ones where I don't know where it can be a free flowing conversation are just so nice okay there's some people who are like so tell me about (laughs) your disease what do you have and I'm just like I'm tired of answering this question but I have to be nice to you because we're recording this yeah correct so um, yeah all the time okay (laughs) so this is fun to get to talk to a friend
0: okay good all right, yes. well, um, super, super glad to have you on uh, the podcast and to be able to just have an excuse to hang out for a little bit. Um, just give people some context of kind of who you are. Uh, not You don't have to talk about the book, just kind of some background to give people some context for you.
2: Okay, I'll make it weird. That's fine. Um, <laughs> context for me is I am a bit of a mystic i i like to dwell in the stuff that doesn't make sense uh i love beauty i cry a lot (laughs) i
0: you're an enneagram four
2: i'm an enneagram four (laughs) yes um I don't know. Every time someone asks me for context or like asks me to introduce myself, I, I feel this is probably my foreignness, but I feel the, the need to be like, not lead with what do I do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So I always like here we go. Let's see what comes out of my mouth today. But <laughs> there you go. That's some context. I'm a therapist. I'll tell you what I actually do. I'm a therapist and I'm an author, um, and I'm also your friend.
0: Yes. Well, and that's really pretty much all these podcasts that you've been doing with people. I hope that you've led with that. I know this guy named <laughs> Joseph in Charlotte. Uh,
1: right. Yeah. Really, that's what <laughs> I've been leading with,
0: obviously. Obviously. Um, so how how long have you been a therapist? Because I actually don't know that.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I, I struggle to know what what year to determine as the beginning because I started my practice on my own while I was still in school. So I started my practice, uh, in 2016. Okay. So I guess I'll say then, Okay. even though I technically wasn't graduated and licensed then, but yeah.
0: And what, what year did you guys move to Charlotte?
2: Oh, our brief weird interlude of life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was we moved there December twenty eighteen. Okay, and left May twenty nineteen. So oh, we were there for so we were there for six months basically.
0: I didn't realize it was that short. I thought it was like yeah. a year and a half or something, and it was no, <laughs> a year no, less than that.
2: Real brief, real brief.
0: Well we we don't have to we don't have to go into that. Although that's I'm thankful for it because that's how we intersected and yeah, just,
2: which didn't. Ryan, my husband's name is Ryan. For those who are listening, Does Ryan met you via Twitter, right?
0: I think so. I think that I think he reached out initially because we had friends of friends that we followed on Twitter, or he followed me. I don't know. And uh, and he said, "Hey, I just moved to Charlotte and would love to hang out." So then we started having coffee and lunches and stuff um, semi regularly, and then that's kind of mm-hmm. how. We intersected, which is uh, serendipitous and cool because I—I I mean, you know this now, but I get so many, and I don't—I don't even say this because it's like, man, you must be pretty cool. But I get so many of the like, "Hey, bro, let's connect over coffee," messages, and it's—and yeah. it's church people, and I would rather put myself through a tree grinder than do that <gasps> most of the time. I mean, it oh is my just, I, just horrifyingly awkward, forced kind of like, anyway, so I, I don't do that sort of thing a lot on purpose because I, I just, it, it, I really do have like a medical aversion to it. And so, uh, anyway, it was really refreshing like and good. And, uh, and so, yeah, it, it, I love, I love what you do specifically. I love the intersection of what you do. And, um, and obviously, uh, kind of a little bit of the impetus of, of this is that you have a book that just came out, but, I would love, before we get into any of that stuff, I'd love to help kind of give people some kind of a entry into how that book came out. Because I, there are so many mm-hmm. people that their first book or something is, uh, I don't know, it just feels a little bit detached. It feels like it's sort of, a, uh, it just makes sense on paper or whatever. But this is something that like really came out of profound Pain and like the the real story of your life. It is the journey that you've been on, and so
2: yeah, yeah, it's my heart. My heart is in this book for sure.
0: And and that's some of that that we'll talk about in a second. Is is also probably connected to you being a therapist too, right? Mm
2: -hmm, Definitely. Yeah. Well, both the approach of of why I wrote it the way I did, but the the way of bringing together disciplines was is you know, informed in large part by my kind of theoretical orientation as a therapist too.
0: Yeah. So without, without reading your medical chart, talk to, (laughs) talk to folks about kind of what, what that, that part of you is and how formational it is or how foundational it is.
2: Yeah. Well, I am 31 years old and when I was 20, I very suddenly got sick with what would later be diagnosed as an autoimmune disease named ankylosing spondylitis. And so for the last 11 years, I haven't had a day without physical pain. Um, and yeah, I haven't really had any time in that whole 11 years without pain. And so the book was born out of my story looking so different from what I had hoped for and expected Mm. and my faith being stripped bare and also oddly rebuilt through being shattered and Yeah, so it's, the book is, it includes a lot of my story, but it's in large part this invitation to the wonder that somehow in our suffering, we can experience the communion of our suffering Lord Mm. with Jesus, that I've found that over and over again through my experience of pain and, you know, not just the the physical disease I have, but also through experiences of spiritual abuse and mm. getting in touch with other pieces of trauma and woven throughout my story. And so it's through having to live in a story that I never would have chosen that I came to write this story in this book for people like me who have to grapple with living in circumstances they wouldn't have wanted
0: oh man yeah and it's not it's not like uh in spite of the fact that you've had physical ailments and these kinds of struggles but uniquely in them finding god which i think is such a careful distinction um right yeah so before before you get the diagnosis at 20 what what trajectory were you on like what what was the path (laughs) that was shattered
2: yeah, thanks for asking that question. I feel like when people ask about like how the book was born, I don't know that anyone's actually ever asked me that on any of these podcasts. So <laughs> thanks for asking that. Um yeah, my <clears throat> my path was I I was studying community development and I was planning on changing the world mm-hmm. <laughs> and like i had shifted from focusing on international development and i had like my little white savior dream had to die mm-hmm. of going to west africa and like doing savings groups and i just i ended up focusing on economic development in the us and you know as part of a multicultural church and i i I was planning on living in poor neighborhoods and like working for a nonprofit forever. And I also knew then I already knew I was a nerd and that I was probably (laughs) going to do some sort of like writing and research Mm -hmm. forever. Um, But yeah, I had a big burning passion to change the world and I planned on like not getting married until I was 35 and yeah. That's a little picture, of, yeah. of my little feisty self <laughs> before I got sick, and then had you know everything change. So, I still want to change the world. Of course,
1: be
0: sure, sure, sure. I, I I think that's such a I don't know I because I I get that sense that like that there was that there was something before this that like this it's not just wrestling with a diagnosis or wrestling with pain. It's like the existential crisis, dark night of the soul kind of thing, because I'm assuming that there was a, a lot of uh, energy and, you know, overall wellness and all of that, that once that, once that went away, the kind of energy or fervor that was going into that also died with it. So that's just like a, and maybe, well, no,
2: it's, what's interesting is the energy of fervor never died, but my physical capacity to uh. pursue it as fully and actively, that's not always there. And so this is actually the, the juxtaposition or the, the, the place of tension that I find myself in over and over again is the, there's both, there's my inner like capacity and my capacity mentally to, approach subjects in a certain way and do certain things. And then there's what my body can do because of just where my disease is and like how intense it can be sometimes. And so sometimes my, maybe my intellectual capacity to affect change in the world and my physical capacity to do the work involved don't always match. And my great need is always to, uh, embrace my diminished capacity physically with kindness and with acceptance, but also to grieve it.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, and
2: that's then what I think pulls me into further action that's sustained sustainable and good, but it's it's a process and it I have to go there a lot.
0: Yeah, that's, that's even that's even harder because if it was if it was just if, if the, the energy and the drive died all at once then it would be something to mourn, but there would be Maggie's crying in the background. Uh, <laughs> there would be some finality to it. You know, it would be like, all right, well I can just, that that's a dream that died or that's a, uh, you know, a kind of, this is so distracting to hear her cry. There's something like <laughs> as a parent, yeah, that you just I'm sure. like your body go, It something goes off and it's like, fix this, fix this, fix this. Uh, but anyway, to continue that, uh to have all of the to have all of that drive and energy and will and like desire to do all of that and then to be met with the limitations of your own body and then to not to not reject that sort of thing and like to fight against it or to despair of that at all times but to like come to terms with it and all of that that's just who that no no wonder you became a therapist i mean that's like
2: yeah, right.
0: It's a lot I'm to glad. lot to process.
2: It is and and it remains a lot to process and and I think that's part of really what's behind the book is like we many for many of us there are going to be things like that. Like we we will have tensions that we have to live in that we can't escape. And but we're so, we're so used to 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 jumping over attention or trying to overcome it you know and I I just think that that is often a distraction that inevitably will lead to defeat and discouragement that there's something it's no wonder okay it's no wonder Joseph that the heart of the Christian faith is the cross of Right. two things coming. It's, you know, the pieces of wood coming together. Like the heart of the Christian faith is a paradox, mm-hmm. but we spend so much of our energy trying to escape tension. And I just find over and over again, both personally and professionally that it's in my, willingness to be stretched at the poles of what I want and where I am that I can most experience transformation and Mm -hmm. communion with God and others. So I want to invite people into that.
0: Amen. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, you started off by saying you're mystic and, uh, I, I think, I think for the mystic, like, it, and it's not something often that you choose roar says that's great love or great suffering pulls you into this. And so, yeah, it, you, you like before that happens, you are certainty seeking and anybody that provides it, I mean, look, this is just like quintessential look at the church kind of a thing. If anybody can provide certainty on anything, then they're there to be followed because maybe they've got it figured out. Pete Holmes always mm-hmm. says that like he thinks about his 24 year old, youth pastors growing up, and it's like, I don't know, they had a goatee and khakis and had car keys. I guess they had figured it, you know, like they, they seem to have figured it out. So I guess I'll just listen to them. Uh, and, but yet being like pulled into that space of ambiguity and realizing that you're never, I think Parker Palmer has a book called like the power paradox or something, but you're never going to find your way out of that. Like it's always going to be the tension of opposites. You're always going to be in that liminal space or whatever. And so finding, yeah, that's, that's, that's the work for me.
2: I I think that's the work for all of us. If we're honest about what we actually feel and what is in our lives, then we will be faced with the reality that there is a chasm between where we are and where we wish we could be. Mm -hmm. And, and if we're, if we're willing to, in that and feel it fully we might find that the paradox has possibility within it maybe Mm -hmm. it's not a a prison that's keeping us from what we want but it's actually a shelter
0: wow yeah that's really really good so you grew up uh in the evangelical church right
2: I did, yes.
0: And then, like, I think your your school was an evangelical school too, right?
2: Yeah, um, Covenant College is part of the Presbyterian Church in America, which oh. is the kind of denomination I grew up in.
0: Okay, yeah. so, like,
2: and then Denver Seminary is evangelical too.
0: So, and okay, I'm trying to think of a good way of of posing <laughs> this. So, okay, what you what you're talking about, what you're writing about it's becoming more popularized or something. Like I think there's a little bit more of a, a, a willingness to, to, to talk about things like this or whatever. I don't know that there's a real, um, I don't know. That there's an actual real grappling with it though, or a real like uh, theological foundation that, that people are kind of uh, mm. engaging with it. And so, uh-huh. or engaging with it from, I should say. And so, like I see a lot of the, the the places that you're speaking, even you know your publisher and all of that, it, you're speaking to evangelicals primarily. Is it, am am I wrong in saying that?
2: No, you're right, absolutely.
0: So how have you found? Well, one, how how do you see this, the message that you've lived and that now you've put on paper and that you're preaching, like? how do you see it in confrontation to the world that you grew up in? And then how's it being like, how's it being received right now in all of those spaces?
2: Yeah. Um, I laugh because that is a present tension, of course. Yeah. Um, But I, I, what I'm finding and that I've been surprised by um, over the years of sharing my writing is I expected that somehow, you know, you, you've you read it, so you know there's a lot of feistiness in there. Sure. <laughs> and I I think I expected more pushback, but I, but what I'm finding is the people who have been drawn to my writing are perhaps like more like me than not mm-hmm. in that they have been, they have felt orphaned by evangelicalism,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, grasping after certainty. And they have felt defeated by the American churches. <sighs> overvaluing of prosperity and have found themselves on the out of that story and have and know in their soul that it doesn't work and that it's not true, but have but feel relief when they finally can find people who are willing to acknowledge that it's bullshit. Mm -hmm. Sorry. No. I don't know if you're (laughs) good with but so I think I've been, su- I've been pleasantly surprised that people aren't as angry when <laughs> I read some of the things that I have to say as I expected they might be, mm-hmm. because I think there's just this relief in being willing to mutually acknowledge that story isn't true, and it doesn't work, and perhaps it was never the gospel story, and maybe there's something good and true and beautiful within the story of Scripture and within our midst together that we could discover and hold and nurture and by being willing to be honest about what's broken we can also be hopeful about this wholeness that really could happen and that happens more from the margins than from the place of power so um yeah I have been surprised by the way that it's resonated with people that I thought might be maybe more conservative than they are. I don't know. That makes sense. I think it does. It
0: does. Yeah. I mean, I think it, you know, going back to the, to the mystics, I mean, there are certain things that you just hear them and they ring true, you know? And so even if it's over and against things that you'd previously held the first time, you read a certain thing, you go, it just has that ring to it of that just is true. I can just feel that at a soul level. And it resonates with my own personal experience. It resonates with my own life. And, um, and so, you know, my, my background, it was evangelical, but it was Pentecostal. And it was like, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it was a caricature of, uh, denial of suffering. You know, it is like you pray it away. You you have enough faith to believe it to you know be powerless under the blood of Jesus. It's gonna you know all of that stuff, and so
1: mm-hmm.
0: it it, uh, it it's not without like creating significant trauma in people. And you know I think we talked about I know we talked about quite a bit um, the stuff that was happening with Bethel a few months mm-hmm. ago with one of their worship leaders that the child, like their one of their children died. And for a week or more, I don't know if it was more than that, they were rallying everyone around mm-hmm. the clock to raise this kid from the dead. And, you know, the impulse of that, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, because I grew up in something that was similar to that, maybe uh, a little bit less extreme, I can see all of the theological underpinnings that would lead right. them to that moment, you know, and saying that this is what's faithful. And yet pastorally, the thing that we talked about is just like, there needs to be somebody that says you're going to have to accept that there is this profound suffering that it it's not going to go away. And what God wants to, to do good out of this is going to happen through it. And it's not going to be, um, you know, it's not going to go away. The more we deny it, and so I just think, mm-hmm. I just think that the the message that you're you've lived and the message that you've written is um, is such an important one because I think it is. I do think it um, it relieves and alleviates unnecessary suffering uh, because there's the suffering of mm-hmm. what is, you know, that, that's we're not going to avoid, and then there's the secondary trauma yes. of all the other stuff that comes with it. So did you have, yeah,
2: there's the secondary trauma of the story we tell about the trauma we're living and the story that faith, that the story that our communities of faith often hand to us to tell about our suffering often reinforces our own sense of shame without us meaning to. And so, yeah, you're, you're dead on. That's, that's, that is the heart behind the book that we, we don't have to re-traumatize ourselves by trying to fit our lives into the mold of a story. That's not even that good or true. Right. There's a better story here.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. That, uh, I mean, in, in your own practice, uh, with, Uh, your own therapy practice. Do you, do you experience people that have like profound, I mean, I I know that I do even just pastorally with people, but that are walking around with significant hurt and trauma from their, uh, you know, growing up their upbringing and within the church.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's a whole range of what, stories people are bringing into our sessions and our work together but the majority of the people that i work with are christians and are evangelical and i find that the burden of believing the right thing or especially the the burden of uh, disembodied faith of Mm -hmm. of having to dismiss our emotions and our distress mm-hmm. like to to quickly like most of us know that are ra- that we're raised in the evangelical church uh just inherently mistrust our bodies and our emotions and think that that's actually being faithful right when really that's that's the place that we most need to reconnect to and we most need to honor (laughs) we could most know that God loves us and sees us so I, I think in every person that I see there is this deep shift that has to happen from my body is bad to my body is good loved and the dwelling place of God and like to practice practically be able to experience that in whatever their particular circumstances are is where they come to experience a lot of change and encouragement.
0: Yeah. That, that whole disembodied thing is, uh, it's extremely stark. I, I was thinking about that. Um, recently I, I saw saw Facebook post yesterday. I've been really trying to avoid Facebook because it just makes me seethe. Um, but, uh, Somebody posted something like, "for for those of us who who are silent right now, uh, just we're we're going to war in the heavenlies, and we're you know all that kind of like that Jesus is is uh real and true to me. It's this sort of like, it's this completely disembodied thing, and so I think that even with The moment that we're in right now, because I don't know why I've been thinking about this so much, but all of the theological underpinnings that bring us that bring about why someone acts the way that they do or why they don't act in certain ways. And I think that what we're experiencing or seeing in the country right now is, you know, the response from the church has largely been it. I, I think it I don't know. I think it's been stunted because we don't think that the world and we don't think that bodies matter, you know. And so, right. so we're, we're so, we're so tied up thinking about souls and thinking about our personal relationship with Jesus or whatever. And it's like, Jesus told us that he is physically present to us in the bodies mm-hmm. of the imprisoned and the broken and the marginalized. And yeah, that's such a disconnect. It's such a, I don't know. Do you, do you think that, is there something there?
2: Oh, there's, that's huge. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, we, we don't want that faith. I think we want, we want the gospel of American individualism, right? We don't want the gospel that says we take up our cross and follow Jesus and die Mm -hmm. like that. We, that we do have to sacrifice our rights and our wants we don't want that gospel
1: mm-hmm.
2: even though it's what we know is true and we know is what leads to joy like jesus said you know he his message was that his joy would be in us and our joy would be full and and then that yeah his he is amongst the least of these but we don't put those together so we speak joy without going to the places that hurt mm. we don't put we don't put them to pain and joy together and we aren't actually living i think most of the time in the real story of the real kingdom
1: because of it
0: yeah amen I, I, frederick Beekner says that um that vocation is the intersecting point where mm. your your own deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger Yes. And, and so, you know, he says, if you, he goes on in that paragraph to say something like, if you have one, if you have the deep gladness, but it doesn't have anything to do with the world's hunger, then it's, it's worthless. And then if you meet, you know, the world's hunger, but you have no gladness in it, then you'll be worthless. Like you, you won't yeah. be able to have that kind of staying power or whatever to, to actually affect change and it. You will end up being worse and you'll make people worse. Um, mm-hmm. So kind of vocationally, you've got the, you've got, you're an author. I mean, you, you always were, but now you really are because you've got a book. Mm -hmm. You can prove it. Um, and, and you've got your practice. Talk to me about how you've kind of found your own vocational path right now. Like the, how, how did it, how did you get to where you are now?
2: Ooh, yeah, that's a great question yesterday i got to have i'm in a memoir book club and my group
1: what are you um, reading to,
2: well my group chose to read my book for this month but oh. the month though the the month before that we read um congratulations who are you again by harrison scott key which is so good is it? and we there's we have had some great books but they chose to read my book which was super cool and we it was like I don't get to see very many people because being high risk I can't like go in buildings and things like that so we had an outdoor like distanced gathering and one of them asked um like what gave you the audacity to write this (laughs) (laughs) and and I was like like "How, how did that come to be and I realized it was both from my anger and my joy. Mm. And so it's like, and this, this is really behind probably all of my vocation, that there is this anger over the way things are and the way that we treat each other and we don't see each other and that I have experienced being unseen and pushed to the side. And then there's this deep joy over the way we can see each other and that I have felt embraced by the body of Christ and held in love with others. And that even in my own suffering that I've made space for other people to experience this joy in, in their sorrow. And it's like, I know it can be different. I know Mm -hmm. that there can be, a a wholeness and a vibrancy to our relationships with each other and our relationship to ourself. And I, and I have to share that I have to, and I get to, and that's my deepest joy. So I, I think to get to the point of today of having this book be out and, you know, having my therapy practice, it's been a process of being, (laughs) letting my anger propel me into a honest relationship with God and self and others and out of that vulnerability experiencing this depth of connection and change like a changed self and changed community that I can share with others. And part of that is it being honest about who I am. And I'm a big fat nerd <laughs> who likes to sit in front of a computer and write and like, and reads an insane amount of books. And, and it's like along the way, I realized that's not normal. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how I got here.
0: That's yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's so fitting to, to all of that. I, I think I, I'm so inspired and so, uh, like captivated by people who follow you know they follow their their instincts and they follow the things that bring them great joy and they carve out a place in the world for not just for themselves but for others you know uniquely in that and i, I it's a gift to be able to do that and i know that's hard and it's you know it's it's not a it's not an easy thing to pour yourself onto the page it's not an easy thing to have your own practice and all of that but uh, to be able to know that it's like, if you if you uh, brought somebody in as like a life consultant and said, "All right, let's look at all of your interests and all of your gifts, and let's find the place that the world needs them." It's like that's what you're doing right now, and it,
2: yeah, I, it's I love it.
0: Yeah, su- super cool. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, sort of some of the like spiritual abuse part of this because a lot of the folks that yeah. will listen to this, uh, have experienced it. So is there, is there a way that you can talk about that? However you want to, you can be specific or broad or whatever. I just don't want, I don't want yeah, it to feel like, I mean, a, yeah,
1: I don't know if you
2: read the thing I wrote earlier this week.
0: I don't think, I don't think I did.
2: Okay. I shared a bit about like my decision to remove Chris words from my future printings of my book and, It wasn't just about that, but, um, because you included
0: excerpts of his.
2: No, he endorsed my book and Uh, his name's on the back cover. Oh man.
0: That's a, that's a bummer to, to catch people up. He's a Enneagram guy that's really popular. And it just, just came out this week or this past week that, uh, there was a lot of credible allegations against him, um, for sexually inappropriate and stuff. So.
2: Yeah. And spirit and spiritual abuse, especially. That's right.
0: Yeah. Cause it was all kind of, of uh, within yeah, that framework or whatever.
2: Yep, yeah, A domineering, uh, manipulative style of leadership over years. And for, for me, you know, I'm not here to denounce Chris, but I am here to say that kind of abuse wrecked my life. Mm. And that kind of abuse is rampant in the church and it's so subtle. Mm. It's so
1: subtle. Yeah. And
2: and you know, as an author, I feel an special I feel um, especially tender toward this reality because I think um, the way that we treat authors and speakers and pastors often actually just contributes to a culture where things like this happen.
1: Absolutely.
2: Like I wrote in a piece this week, like you are not a product God uses. You are a person God loves, Mm. but we, we turn ourselves into products to sell and we turn our stories into something that has to have a purpose for God to use. And really we're just people whom, god so deeply loved that he died for and there's this norm within our communities of grasping after more and more influence and the people who are able to amass large amounts of followers and are seen as wise um there's a rotting that happens in our souls because we we become less human the more that we turn ourselves into a product and it happens just really subtly. And I think we, we do it to each other and, and it happens so often within our everyday local churches. Um, so yeah, that's where that, where I would go there to start.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that's, the thing that's crazy is that it's, it's a universal, uh, Experience like it's it's not a because um, th- the place that I would love to to just hammer the most is like the event like the big evangelical megachurch kind of culture that creates these like right. l- little micro celebrities and they yep. create their own little small, very insular worlds. They have no real sense of community that's able to hold them accountable because they've hired everybody that's around them. And yes, and so everybody's a yes man or a yes woman to them. And everyone is. Uh, and it's
2: all for the sake of the kingdom. Oh, I think. Well, oh, quote unquote. Growing more in numbers is, is building the kingdom. Keep going.
0: Yeah, for sure. It is, it is, it is absolutely uh, sanctified in all this holy language about how could you ever question any of it because it's for uh, this greater good, which I actually thought about this week because we were watching something on Netflix and it was about the um, USA Gymnastics and the. Michigan State guy that was abusing girls mm-hmm. for so long, and one of yeah. the things that they pointed to in it was that it was insane to think about questioning anybody because they had this singular goal of a gold medal. Right. And so if you, if you question it, it's not just that you're questioning somebody that's an authority, it's that you're going to stop this gold medal quest. And I yes. think that it is unbelievably similar to churches and to
2: Yes, faith leaders. That, that is that is the metaphor that is a perfect metaphor for our unexamined allegiance to growing the kingdom, but not necessarily serving the king.
0: Oh man. And
2: Ooh. like we we get really confused and it becomes really dangerous. And then if you work for a church, uh, you also have your livelihood at stake. Yes, when you start to question, whether this is healthy, and you become very, you know, you're going to lose everything if you start to question the system. Yeah. Um, and so most people don't, or they slowly kind of wither inside for a long time because what are you going to do? I, are you going to feed your family?
0: I have some compassion. Uh, I've found over the years some compassion for leaders that find themselves there because. I think it's alluring in the beginning to be the leader of something, to have people look to you and you be the wise one and you be the strong one and primarily you be the leader. That's the that's the biggest one. And yeah. and then I think that I think it starts to snowball and then I think that people get lost in it and they can't find their way out. They don't like it anymore, but they've created themselves as this caricature that like they are the yeah. Mickey Mouse person and Mickey Mouse can't be like, "You know what? I've got a drug problem." like
1: great right. great right. you
0: just can't and so it uh, it just continues to perpetuate but so s- saying all of that about like the the stuff that I've had experiences with and really unhealthy leaders and narcissistic people and all of that it's it, and I want to make sure that I say this because it's even um, present in places you wouldn't think i mean Jean Vanier, his stuff came mm-hmm. out this year as well who's like this
1: yeah. brilliant
0: yeah. Uh, tender, beautiful man, you know, who's written all these profound books and started this. I mean, you talk about somebody that is yeah. like, was was described and hailed as a living saint who didn't display any of those kind of narcissistic tendencies that we, at least in terms of what the perception would have been of him. And then it comes out that over the years, there's this strange mm-hmm. sexual abuse that's within the web of you know, all the religious stuff and these transcendent experiences and yada, yada, yada. And it's just all of yep. that to say no one. And th- I think it's m- more for, you know, for, for me, the thing that it hit me was like, no one is, is, is safe from this. Like if you don't examine no yourself, one. if you don't carry your cross, if you don't kind of reckon with your own darkness, it will overtake anyone. It doesn't matter what the context is. And, absolutely uh, yeah
2: yeah no one include and no one including me and i think it's really important for every leader to be willing to say that and to say it again and again like even for me having this book come out and be doing really well like i have to i have to guard against that pride that could take me down a path of self-absorption yeah. and of of arrogance um but this it like like we have been mentioning this is it's subtle it's so subtle how it happens and so i think that for me often i don't i don't necessarily have the answer to it which not that you're asking for it but (laughs) i think that an antidote has the antidote seems to always be being known like being known deeply Mm -hmm in my pain and in my, in like the sickness in my heart that remains, but that needs to be known and held by people who are safe. And like, I have to maintain these relationships where I am not just the author. I sure. am just a person. And that's true for every pastor. That's true for, ev- for every person in any kind of influence, I think.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, ego ego finds its way into everything, and it's the most insidious when you feel the most sincere. You know, <laughs> it it. Uh, I, I talk to uh, my spiritual director every every few weeks, and uh, one of the things that he and I talk about all the time is uh, uh, all of these spiritual practices, all this contemplative prayer, and all this stuff. It's 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 almost only about decentering ego. Like it's Mm -hmm. if it if it's not in service of that, then, you know, you can continue to just live in falsehood. And so the thing that uh, Richard Rohr always says is he says that uh, he prays he prays for one great uh, humiliation every day to Mm -hmm. to like knock him down, you know, like to because he says when when every person that talks to you, I don't care if it's Michael Jordan or or some mega church pastor, when everyone reveres you, when everyone sees you as this wise person or whatever, if you don't have it's why I cherish like college buddies of mine that still, mm-hmm. you know, relentlessly make fun of me. And yes. <laughs> it is like it's sir it's for a purpose. Like it it don't forget who you are, you know, because yeah as much as you want to be the big shot, whatever, you there is there is the real you that need, you yes. have to continue cultivating and like keeping that small flame alive. Because once it's gone, it's gone. And it's a dark path. Once that goes off.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I experienced the same thing with my friends who are like, uh, yeah, it's cool you wrote a book, but you're just you. <laughs> right, just right, like right. Fun of me. And it, it's, Good or they, you know, like my friends don't read everything I write, <laughs> right, and God right. bless them for that because <laughs> yeah. I don't need people to call me the shit. You yeah, know? Right. like I need people who I need to be just me, and yeah, there's something about, like you said, the small flame. I think
1: uh-huh.
2: it's this willingness to be small, uh-huh. to not make ourselves smaller than we are, just normal limit. But yeah, to like <laughs> to keep showing up in the the very ordinary parts of life and i think to go back to we were you were talking about vocation and where you know how how'd you get here and something i think about a lot as what my vocation is is that it's shepherding
1: and yeah.
2: it's like i i never want to lose sight of that this work beyond the work is not all of who i am even the shepherding the the work itself is about this shepherding this smallness and that like the way the kingdom of god comes is not through not generally through power and might and uh large amounts of numbers happening it, it, it comes through our smallness and our suffering and like it's in these small spaces of people's sorrow and their stories where they ache and hurt that's that's where Jesus does his tender work and I have to be willing to to cultivate that space and to go there personally all the time too even when it's inconvenient for the what the culture would tell me is the way of being a successful you know therapist and author for the kingdom of God
0: you're so right Oh, it's so good. I I uh, I'm reading. Eugene Peterson mm-hmm. wrote a bunch of letters to his son Eric that Eric just published, and oh. um, it's sort of uh, how do you pronounce? Is it Rilke? The Letters to a Young Poet. Is that how you pronounce yeah. that person's I last name? I think that's
2: name? how you pronounce it. Yeah, I think so. So yeah. it's
0: sort of borrowing from that. And it's uh, Letters to a Young Pastor is what the the publisher's named the book. But uh, oh, I need to read that. It's really good. So he's talking about this constant pervasive sense of not fitting into any place that he was in. Uh, Eugene Uh is talking. He's like, I'm going to be going, because this was after he had already retired from his church in Maryland. He said, I'm going to go back and they're going to revere me and they're going to say all these kind things about me and what I've accomplished. And what they're not going to know is that while I was doing it, I had constantly no idea what I was doing. It felt like (laughs) abject failure. It was, you know... Uh boring yeah. i don't Yeah. You know, all of that kind of stuff and uh-huh. uh but one of the things that he was talking about was uh and this is classic peterson but he says like there's there's no such thing as like abstract ministry like there's no right. such thing as like depersonalized terms like the church or fans or a crowd you know like it yeah none of, none of that stuff is uh Makes any sense with ministry, and so he was even talking to his son. He was like, "I can, I can give you some generalities, but they are constantly going to limp because I'm not talking about your people." And so, mm. I don't know. You talking about uh, the the reason that uh, that you wrote the book is like if it's if it, all you ever got from it was reading in your small memoir book group, it would be worth it because those people are image bearers of God, and yeah it's worth, it's worth sharing with, you know, six or eight people or however many people are in it. I had that kind of experience this past week. Um, mm. we did a, we did like a little evening sun, uh, sunset service in a, somebody in our church's front yard and we were all distant and all that. And it was like six or eight of us. And the feeling that I had was, and it, it's, not like a performative version of this. It's not like I'm even happy with this. I felt like yeah. uniquely and specifically this, what we're doing right now, is so intensely worth doing. Like, yeah, it is like, I don't know. Anyway, so I just that that resonated with me extremely, um, extremely profoundly. Um, well, so
2: yeah, I love that. I love that so much. I think. I know you're trying to wrap up. But no, like, no, go ahead. There's just this, like, if you don't, if we don't cultivate space for that smallness, those sacred moments won't happen. Yeah. So it's like in our penchant to build the kingdom and get more people into the doors of churches, which is not, you know, Fear, you know metaphorically because right now that's just weird right but um it's like we 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 miss that when we put all this energy into building something big we really don't have space to be present to be to like uh, to be attuned and bear witness to the the astounding reality that and every human being we come face to face with, we are seeing the image of God and there's this sacredness, like that has to be cultivated space to be able to be that present to bear witness. And I, so I love that you said that about your church, because I think that's the good stuff. That's the <laughs> space where we like taste the kingdom of God coming. Yes. Yeah. It has to be, it has to be cultivated.
0: Well, thanks for cutting me off. That was really, that was really beautiful. And uh, yeah, I think, I think you're exactly right. If you can't, if you can't find a context that, you know, you can look people in the eye, know and be known by them, share burdens, um, know people's (laughs) first names was, is a good start, know their stories and to be interacting as whole people, embodied people, uh, you know. That, that's where the that's where the juice is that's the good stuff and um mm-hmm. amen w- well I we've gone this whole time and haven't uh I haven't talked about the title to your book which is my favorite book title of all time oh and gosh t- <laughs> t- tell them the title because it just it is the best title ever
2: um thank you that's awesome uh this too shall last finding grace when suffering lingers
0: oh uh, it's so good and you you may you came up with it didn't you
2: together with ryan together with my husband we came up with it
0: he's the best too i like so him a lot he is, yeah 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 he is
2: the best uh, he's really better he's really the one that's better than me and way more fun and fun <laughs> to be with but but so he should be the one on this podcast but yes this is a joint effort we got to come over with it together which is really special because you don't usually get to keep the title you come up with
1: yeah
0: with he... publishing so he is he is a quiet force. He is somebody that he starts writing so and you're good. like, "Oh my god, like what well, you better listen. It's really he good." He just
2: did you see? He just started a blog?
0: No, I did not.
2: He's, he's going to be upset when he finds out that I said this on a recorded podcast, but Plug it. He started he started a blog. The man is sharing some words that are strong and good. And yeah. I love them. It's so good.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, if, if, uh, if people are not going to pick up the book, which I, uh, suggest that you do immediately, definitely follow KJ on, on, uh, Instagram. It is always really, really good. There's constantly stuff up there and it's, it's all really intentional. And, um, I think it's a really good kind of entry point into your work. You share a lot of, uh, just great stuff, you know, based whether it's kind of therapy stuff or, or stuff from the book, I think, Uh, you're one of the best follows on Instagram. And so um, I'm really glad you wrote the book. I'm really glad you exist. And and thank you for, for hanging out and for sharing your story and stuff.
2: Thank you for doing this. This was a delight.